Welcome to the Shifting Our Schools podcast, where we believe learning never stops. We create innovative and flexible professional development opportunities that support the current research and thinking in education today. This week's podcast episode aspires to set you up to take another step forward on your personal learning journey. Now here's your host, Jeff Udick. Welcome back to another episode of Shifting Our Schools. Thank you for finding some time to tune in this week. What a great episode we have for you today with Duke University researcher, Dr. Gaither, on how helping students understand their multiple identities leads to being more creative. But before we get to that conversation, I have a few announcements. First of all, a shout out to our sponsor, TeacherWit. TeacherWit is creating an inspiring community of educators. Joining the community is free, and when you do, you get access to live events like the Using Portfolios as an Assessment for Learning that I'll be doing on April 19th, or the What If interview with Katie Martin that took place this week. Of course, they are all recorded, so you can go back and watch them at your convenience. All you need to do is join this great community of educators looking to improve their practice. Thank you to Teacher Wit for being a sponsor of the Shifting Our Schools podcast. Teacher Wit, creating an inspiring community of educators. Also, on April 21st and 22nd, you can catch me and a host of other great educators at the NCCE conference. To attend this great conference virtually this year, head to ncce.org and register today. Also, I'm proud to promote the upcoming Learning 2 conference, a conference that I helped to get started back in 2007 and still sit on the board of today. This year's virtual conference will be held on April 23rd from 9 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. China time. That's UTC plus 8. To register and learn more, go to learning2.org. All right, let's get to this week's conversation with Dr. Gaither from Duke University talking about her research around identity and helping students understand their multiple identities and how that leads to more creative students. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Gaither from Duke University. And with that, on with the show. Welcome back to another Shifting Our Schools podcast. I'm so excited to have a special guest with us. Uh, looking forward to getting to hear more about your research, Dr. Gather. It's a fantastic time to uh, time of year to be thinking about some of this stuff and some of the some of the uh, research you're doing around social identity experience and stuff like that. So uh, excited to get into it today. Before we get too far, welcome to the podcast. And can you give us just a little background? of where you come from and how you got at to Duke University. Yeah, yeah. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, my name is Sarah Gaither. I'm an assistant professor at Duke University, and I run the Duke Identity and Diversity Lab. Uh, for me, what really causes me to study identities, why we think the way we do, how we think the way we do, is I grew up biracial, so I look super white if you Google me, but I have a black dad and a white mom. And so for me, growing up with that family structure and constantly being questioned about who I am and where I fit in and where I don't fit in made me super curious about the role and the power that our identities play in our everyday lives. And so that's really what caused me to want to get a PhD and study this for a living. So um, that's pretty much who I am. Very, very cool. I want to get us started by just reading a little bit uh, from your uh, website, because uh, I think it's so cool for, for listeners when they actually get to go read your bio and then have you kind of talk about some of the research you, you do. So this is this is what it says on the Duke University website, right? It says, your research focuses broadly on how a personal social identity and experiences across the lifespan motivate their social perceptions and behaviors in diverse settings. More specifically, 
You study how contact with diverse uh, others shape social interactions, how having multiple racial or multiple social identities affects different types of social behaviors and categorizations of others, and what contexts shape the development of racial perceptions and biases from childhood through adulthood. So for listeners who are on their own learning journey on intersectionality and, in, and identity, I'm wondering if you can give us an example of how you go about doing this important research. Yeah, so I think, you know, we are growing up in a society where we like to think about ourselves in very fixed boxes. And I personally hate that. Again, being biracial, it's this kind of natural existence where when you see a demographic form, you are constantly faced with which box do I have to check if you're not given a check, all that apply. Um, So I think what motivates me in my work and how I try to encourage everyone else who I talk to about my work Um, is the fact that we all belong to multiple groups. We all belong Mm. to multiple boxes. And yet for some reason, our human existence is to always think about ourselves in this very fixed, singular way. And so really what my main takeaway in my work is to make sure that we're always considering our whole selves, every little Mm. part of ourselves. It's not just one thing at a time, but these intersections of our experiences and our identities that make us who we are. Very cool. And we're talking like our audience is mostly k 12 educators here. How do you see this work really impacting the K-12 classroom? Yeah, I think it's a great, a great way to start because people often ask me, you know, is there a critical age point where we can get people to think differently? And I always say the younger, the better. Mm. Uh, So identities come online really early. Our gender identities are firmly online around the ages of two or three. By the ages of five to seven, race and ethnicity start playing really important roles. And it's around that same age when kids actually are able to think very complexly about themselves. They start questioning who they are, where they fit in, where they don't fit in who their friends are, do they match their families, do they not? And again, the same fixed notion of how we think about ourselves as only being one thing at a time can limit the creativity and the way young kids are seeing the world around them. Um, So getting kids to think about the fact that they belong to multiple identities, we argue in a lot of our work, gets them to expand their social networks, expand how they approach their courses and learning in the classroom. It gets you to think more flexibly rather than, again, being stuck on this singular identity train and thinking about ourselves in just this fixed way. And we start that, like you said, like at a very young age, but do you see this work? Like, is this something that like, do you feel, and I know you're passionate about this work, so, but do you feel like, is this something that we in education, we need to make consistent from very early ages, but all the way through kids who are 18 years old as through middle school, high school, when identity again, becomes a big thing around puberty and where do you fit in and what's going on? Are you, are you helping with doing work or, or what are you seeing like with a, with a school district or a school doing like a whole K-12 focused on, on these ideas? Yeah, so when kids are changing classrooms or changing schools mm. between elementary school and middle school, those are really key identity development periods, even going off to college, right, to get further along the developmental spectrum. These times are times of transition. And whenever a kid is in a time of transition, they're constantly comparing themselves to whether or not they look similar or don't look similar to the people in their classroom, right? So if we as educators can give kids the tools and the language and the practice discussing the fact that we're not just our race and our gender, right? We are race and gender, but we're also, whether we're an athlete, whether we're a foodie, whether we are a neighbor or a friend, right? There's all these different um, identities that I think we under acknowledge within classroom settings. And what most research would argue from psychology is that the more commonalities or similarities we can identify within a classroom cohort of students, 
the more united that class is going to be, the higher sense of belonging we're going to see those kids have in that classroom space. And so again, it's getting kids to think flexibly about who they are to expand that in-group, right? To make that classroom space um, seem more like a family and less focused on those differences, right? That we have between, between kids. I love that. Think more flexibly about who you are. That's such a good line. I love that. That's so good. I love it. Uh, your team there at Duke University has a set of values listed on your website. Uh, and we'll be sure to link to those on the website because I think it's great for everyone to see these. But uh, at Shifting Schools, we have provided some professional development on how important it is that learning, that learners co-construct a mission statement or a set of values as a club or a class. Can you share how your lab set of values came to be and what do you do to refine them or go back to them? How often as a team do you kind of take a look at them or how do they drive your work? Yeah, so our lab has anywhere from 15 to 20 undergrads who work on our lab every semester at Duke, and they represent every different type of identity you could think of from racial and ethnic minorities to sexual and gender minorities, first generation college students, limited income students. And so what we realized as a lab is that because we represent so many different things, that's what made our lab this kind of unique space on campus. And so we wanted to make sure that that was highlighted on our website so that other students could find their place of belonging here at Duke um, and to really remind ourselves as a group of who we are as a family and as a community. And so we actually created an anonymous Google Doc allowed every single student, undergrads, grad students, postdocs, lab managers, myself, we could all contribute anonymously of the things that we felt make our lab unique, what make our lab a lab itself. Um, And so through this kind of combined process, again, it highlighted our common values as a group and helps us feel more like a family and a community. Um, We do try and update them once a year as new students join our lab in different ways. Um, And we have some research now from one of our grad students, Jane Lear, who's defending her dissertation this summer that actually shows value statements, particularly for schools that are less diverse, Mm. actually play a really strong role in marking it as a a safer space for those minority students. So if you are in a a K-12 setting that's not as diverse as you wish it could be, these mission statements are actually actually proving to be a really strong cultural cue in making sure that for your few minority students you do have, it does make them feel safer. So we have some research actually showing this on the science side too. Oh, that's awesome. And do so do you do this? Does the anonymous form go out once a year then? Is this something you do yearly? Like start from the bottom up again, like send out the form and bottom up. Let's, let's make sure our values are still in. Yeah. We try to do it every year, every two years, depending on how often um, students are graduating from our lab. So as we get new cohorts of students in, we'll send out the Google doc again and get it updated. Um, So it is something that really was a a nice free activity too. It doesn't cost any money, right? Right, K-12, we struggle with budgets just like you do. Um, So these kind of free community building activities um, are really nice ways um, to, again, remind ourselves about the values that we practice in the lab every day. And do you find, do they change a whole lot? Or is it a lot of times just reaffirming and like maybe a, a word change, but a wordsmithing of things? But are you finding that they, like, once you kind of have this and it becomes part of like who you are, is there a whole lot of changes that are still taking place? We find there's new identity labels that are sort okay. of um, being created over time, um, new identity groups, new identity clusters. Um better ways, uh, more inclusive ways of saying certain phrases. I'd say it's more terminologies that get updated and added to the document over time. Um, But the overall core sentiment of what the value statement is doesn't seem to change as much year to year, I think, because we end up attracting the same types of people, right? Right. Um, Your core values will attract the same type, right? You you end up getting the people you want. Yeah. People who don't believe in the value statements don't apply for our jobs. Yeah, there you go, right? It it works in that way. (laughs) I love that. I love that. 
your work has been featured and credited in loads of places, including CNN, the podcast uh, Code Switch, and many other places. Um, all along with journals, you've also won a prestigious grant, congratulations, which yeah. I've read uh, will help you do more research on the topic of identity accessibility. Can you talk more about that and why it is important for K-12 teachers to learn more about this idea of identity accessibility? Yeah, so we just got a National Science Foundation career grant, which is a five-year grant. Um, it's very competitive. And what we're proposing in this grant, which includes some studies with kids, is that there's two pathways that people can take in order to have this more flexible way of thinking. The first pathway is through your lived experiences. So if you're biracial or bicultural, bisexual, people who really live this dual identity type of experience, um, they can actually think more flexibly, right? They're able to perspective take more easily because of living with different racial groups or different cultural groups. Um, so that's one pathway. But I always argue that you don't have to be biracial or bicultural to think flexibly. Anyone has this ability to do so. And that second pathway is through increased diversity, contact, and exposure. Mm. Um, so if you live in more diverse places or if you are exposed to diversity through the media that you watch, um, whatever the case may be, the more contact and exposure you have with people who are different, that, again, is expanding your sense of self to realize you can be lots of different things. And so this grant is really setting up um, measuring these two different pathways as a way to make our identities more accessible so that we don't think about ourselves with just our racial or gender identities, these more socially salient categories we stress so often in U.S. society, but we're race and gender and all of these other things at the same right. time. So that's what the grant's focusing on. That sounds like fun. That's your next five years, huh? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> already, Hopefully already more, but we'll see. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, you're so much into research and anyone who's looking through your CV would be amazed at the work that you've done. And my audience being educators and the next generation uh, who are educating the next generation of researchers, what advice would you give to K-12 educators as they inspire researchers of the future? Like what are some of the mindsets that you think are really important? I think, you know, I've done a few teacher training prep programs and stuff over my career. And I think that the biggest questions we always get is what do we do to make students more inclusive with each other? And I think that being open minded is the best piece of advice, uh, making sure that the uh, lesson plans that you do, the authors you're assigning in your classroom are representative of lots of different identities. I think we get stuck once we've prepped a class on the same way as a college instructor. You don't want to update your materials because it takes time and effort. But our discussions of identity are changing and shifting and making sure that each student in your classroom is seen or heard in some way through the pictures on your walls, through what it is you have assigned, and making sure that you as a faculty member, right, within these classroom settings are open when a child does come to you to report something that's happened to them. I think we don't often have uh, the right training um, mm. and accessibility and being able to talk about discrimination experiences, particularly for underrepresented identities. Um, so trying to make sure that you're as well-versed as possible navigating those spaces so that when something does happen to a child, their identity is seen and heard is super important. Oh, I love that. I love that. Uh, lastly, I'm going to be sure to include a link to the article in the show notes, but uh, there was a great article that you wrote uh, called Why We Should All Consider Our Multiple Identities. And in that article, you write... When children were reminded of their own multiple identities, we saw significantly more creative thinking. Can you talk to listeners about how we can have this critical conversation with our listeners? I love that idea. The more we know about ourselves, the more we're actually seeing kids become critical thinkers. 
Yeah. So this is just building off of the same grant idea and that if we can get kids to think flexibly about themselves early on, remind them that they're a reader, a drawer, a friend, a soccer player, just any identities that mean something a lot to that child, that tends to boost kids' flexibility and thinking and problem solving. So we had them do um, what we call a multiples uses task. So we'd show them a random object and say, hey, can you tell me super creative ways to use this box, ways you've never used it before? And reminding kids about their multiple identities, they came up with 10 to 15 ways to categorize or how to use that box. But when you don't remind a kid about the fact that they belong to multiple groups, they just say, oh, you know, you can hold pencils in it. You can do this in that very normal ways of using a box. Mm. So we find that kids are much better at creative thinking. Um, the other thing we see in that study is that it actually boosts kids' flexibility in how they see their social world. So they, mm. again, aren't seeing just race and gender. We give them 16 photos that differ by race, gender, age, emotion that you can see on their faces. And kids actually organize those pictures into more social groups when you remind them about the fact that they have multiple social identities. So it's not only um, broadening their creativity and problem solving skills, but also again, how flexibly they're seeing social categories around them, which we argue again, increases that belonging in any classroom space. That's so cool. Such an important part of what we do in the classroom every day. And it's so critical, just this idea, the more we know about ourselves, you know, and the more we're able to, to know our different identities, the more we become critical thinkers and what that, what the, what that looks like in our classrooms for people who want to reach out to you or follow you on social media, where are some of the best places? If people want to just keep up with all the research that you're doing, where, where should they go? So I am on Twitter. We always try and post links to our new research and pictures of our science on Twitter. So I'm at Sarah E. Gaither. We also have a lab website where we always post free access to all of our published work. We have a lab Facebook page as well where we post updates there. So any of those places are great ways to stay in contact. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Uh, it's great to get your voice out there. I'm excited. We'll make sure that all the links are in the show notes, links to your Twitter, and we'll, we'll get your Facebook page and stuff as well. Because uh, I think it's really great for educators to be able to keep up with, like even just following you on Twitter and you're releasing this research to stay you know, uh, active and stay engaged in these critical conversations we need to be having in our classroom. So uh, appreciate that. Appreciate all the work that you're doing and all the research that you're doing on behalf of all of us. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for having me. And we often have online study opportunities for kids of different ages. So you can also stay tuned for those opportunities as well. Fantastic. Thanks so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Shifting Our Schools. If you found this episode helpful or inspiring, please make sure to subscribe and leave the team a five-star rating. If you want to learn more about the Shifting Schools team or download our free resources, head over to shiftingschools.com to see what's on offer now. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode to keep rethinking the shifts our schools need.